Welcome to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We're excited you've joined us as we hear what God has to say to us through Scripture and this message from Pastor Paul. If we were to think of the greatest uniquely American holiday, I think I'd have to put my vote in for Thanksgiving. It's truly a a time, a celebration when families gather, and it includes my four favorite F's, family, food, football, and a fat man in a red suit at the end of the Macy's Parade. (laughs) Think about what's unique to the Thanksgiving, even at mealtime. I mean, a whole turkey. I don't know about your household, but we don't do whole turkeys week in and week out. There's something special for a time like Thanksgiving. And then you add to it those favorite side dishes that you have. Maybe it's green bean casserole, sweet potato casserole, it's dressings, it's two or three wonderful desserts. Needless to say, there are certain expectations for what we eat and what we do on this big holiday. Well, today we're in the first portion of Luke 22, where Jesus is going to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. And you have to understand, Passover was the big holiday for God's people. There were certain expectations on what they would eat and what they would do. The Passover was remembering the Exodus event. That is the promise and expectation of God being their deliverer. Passover had its own unique foods as a way to remember, such as bitter herbs to remind them of the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. Or there would be a stewed fruit dish, which color and texture reminded them of making bricks for Pharaoh. There were other foods as well, but the most prominent one would come down to the roast lamb. And there was a whole detailed procedure for how to cook it and how to eat it. For instance, you had to eat it in one sitting, reminiscent of having to leave Egypt in haste. And of course, the big idea behind the lamb was taking some of its blood for that very first ever Passover and painting that blood around the outside of your door for the angel of death to pass over so that any house that had the lamb's blood, the people in that house would be spared. As the Passover celebration evolved, there would be a series of four cups that would take place during the Passover meal, all of them in remembrance. All of this you can see is tying in with the Old Testament story of God's delivering His people, delivering them out of the bonds of slavery into freedom with Him. Well, Jesus and His disciples are going to share this Passover meal together for the last time. Let me read this passage in its entirety while you follow along on the screen. Luke 22 begins, Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. 
And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. Judas consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus, as he's wanting to celebrate this Passover with them, sent two of his disciples, Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. Jesus replied, As you enter the city, that's the city of Jerusalem, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house. So get this, they're to follow a man to a house, it's not even that man's house. Jesus knows exactly what's going to take place. He's in control of this entire situation. Say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. Now, you might think, oh, we already talked about a cup, right? Remember, there are four cups used in this Passover celebration. The one after supper was the third of the four. It was the cup of redemption. Jesus said, then this cup, we're talking about redemption here, is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man, that's Jesus' declaration for Himself, will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays Him. They, the disciples, began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Now, there are five different aspects to this Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, communion, that we want to hone in on. Number one, it was instituted by Jesus Himself. There are two commands that Jesus gave the church to carry on that we refer to as sacraments, that both of them are tied to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. One is baptism. Through the waters of baptism that we are cleansed, we die to our sins in Jesus Christ, raised to life with Jesus Christ. You can see the, the death, resurrection theme carried over. The second is the Lord's Supper. 
an ongoing celebration that you're invited into as an aspect of that covenant family, as a member of God's household participating in the Lord's Supper, you look back at what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. But it's not that we just look back. Think of it this way. When we celebrate Christmas, we're not just looking back to that very first Christmas. We're doing an ongoing celebration of how God comes to us. When we have Easter celebrations, it's not just looking back at the day that Jesus rose from death to life. It's an ongoing remembrance that He has life and has given it to us. So the Lord's Supper is not just looking back. It's also an ongoing remembrance of Jesus' death in our place for our sins, and we need that daily. Second aspect to note. The bread is the body of Christ. Jesus' very words from verse 19, this is my body given for you. A statement like that has caused great conflict in the Christian church for centuries and in some instances even been divisive. Because I guess it all depends upon what is, is. Is Jesus saying that the bread that he is sharing that night is his body? Or is he saying it's my body as in representative of light that's being broken for you? Well, the Roman Catholic Church's view is the more literal one. Their understanding, and this has a very long word associated with it, it's transubstantiation. It means that the substance of the elements, the bread and the wine, are transformed into the actual body and blood of Jesus. Now, most Protestants would look with disdain on such a notion, and we might even say, hey, it's just a wafer. Part of the Roman Catholic understanding it's from the perspective that the Mass itself is seen as an ongoing representation of the sacrifice of Jesus. So what's being declared in Mass is the need for grace every time we get together. But with the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, there was formulated a different understanding based on the New Testament and especially the book of Hebrews. It was noted that that whole sacrificial system was abolished because it was already fulfilled in Jesus Christ. His sacrifice for us. So these reformers came to the conclusion that the elements don't change. They're still bread and wine, or in our case, bread and grape juice. But even some of those early reformers couldn't get on the same page with how they understood it. John Calvin honed in on the fact that Christ is spiritually present with us. So Jesus himself comes to us through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, enabling us to again realize his death on the cross for our sins. You all in this room come from a variety of traditions. Some of you have come from the Roman Catholic, Episcopal, Lutheran traditions, and in those, the celebration of the Lord's Supper is a weekly event. Others of us 
come from a different perspective. We think, well, no, we don't want it that often because then it gets rote and maybe loses some of its significance. Personally, I think there's a lot of merit in celebrating it more often. Nonetheless, we have chosen to tie it into the Christian year and celebrate it on average about 12 times a year. What's important is the fact that Jesus Christ was broken for our sins. And again, Jesus says this is given for you, for all of you. Now, as a young person, I, it was hard to kind of grasp what's going behind the whole idea of the Lord's Supper. I mean, who of us, no matter how old you are, truly understand what all Jesus has done? But I know as a, as a young person, 11 years old, I was, it was the first time I ever received communion because in my home church in Jacksonville, Florida, Presbyterian Church, the way that we did it back then is that you waited until you had confirmation before you were able to receive communion. Some of you all probably grew up that same way, even at Benton Heights. That's changed in now that it, it's open to you as parents to understand what your child knows. So if they understand that this is tied to what Jesus has done on the cross for our sins, his body, his blood, you don't have to wait. Well, okay, 11 years old. And I don't have this great spiritual grasp like you know, the expert that I am now. And I, I wanted to try to get all the spiritual meaning behind this very first time of, of receiving communion but I couldn't get past the fact that what it looked and tasted like I was eating was a piece of styrofoam. Because you see, in the church in which I grew up back in the day, they didn't use real bread, they used a wafer. Some of y'all are shaking your heads, you know what I'm talking about. I think there was the imprint of a cross on one side, and if you turned it over and you looked at the really fine print, it says this is a flotation device. I've since grown to understand this is about a personal relationship with Jesus. And in the sacrament, Jesus' body broken, the blood poured out is to form a new people. A new people in the body of Christ. And that's Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 10. Similar the third aspect is that the cup is the new covenant in Jesus' blood. Again, Jesus, in verse 20, says that very thing. Jesus is using the language of a new covenant. As first mentioned by the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah, 600 years before Jesus, looking ahead to when God would establish a new covenant with his people. Jeremiah is recounting from Exodus when the people of God were led out of Egypt by the hand of God, redeemed by God, even referred to as God's treasured possession. And yet, in Jeremiah 31, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. 
I will put my law in their minds, write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. This new covenant was not just about breaking the chains of slavery. It was about breaking the chains of sin that God will forgive, that He will remember the sins no more. Jesus, at this Passover meal with His disciples, is making this same statement. This cup is the new covenant My blood poured out for you. It's only through Jesus' blood that there's a new covenant, a new covenant of true forgiveness and freedom from sin. Okay, the fourth aspect to the sacrament is that it is to be celebrated by Christians in unity. There are three prominent terms by which the meal is referred to. I've already mentioned, I think, a couple of them. Lord's Supper, communion. It's also referred to as the Eucharist. It depends upon, again, what Christian tradition you're in. Eucharist. It's a Greek word that means to give thanks. And so it, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist in this case, stirs thanksgiving in our hearts for the freedom to sin that's been won by Jesus Christ and thanksgiving that we are united to God. Lord's Supper is a declaration that Jesus is Lord. He's King. And we get to share this meal. He's invited us. The King has invited us to the table. And it also is a great reminder of what is yet to come. A great feast with the King in His heavenly banquet. And then communion, the third most prominent or one of the, of the three prominent ones, that has a connotation of unity. That we are united to God and to each other through Christ. And it is this aspect that the Apostle Paul has something to say to the Christians in the church in Corinth. Now, Barb read you uh, what Paul had to say. Yes, he does mention about how the Lord's Supper is to be celebrated. He took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them, same way with the cup after supper. But there were some lead-in verses. I never changed it, did I? There's Lord's Supper, there's communion. Here's the lead-in verses. Let me read these to you again, just the, the opening verses of 1 Corinthians 11, starting at 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Paul says, look at your divisions. 
You're not celebrating the Lord's Supper as an act of worship. Some of, you, some of you are consuming everything before others even have a chance to arrive. He says you're misunderstanding the whole point of the Lord's Supper, of communion, of the Eucharist. It's to bring unity, not division. And while we're talking about this, we've got to go back to Luke 22 and that crazy verse 3. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. Satan entered Judas, but none of the disciples knew that. They didn't know Judas would betray their Savior, their Messiah. And then to connect it with verse 21, when Jesus said, The hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. Now, how many of us have had a hard time relating to Judas, and therefore it's easy to demonize this guy? I mean, he betrayed the master with a kiss for money. That's why we don't name many of our kids Judas. But I want to give you this thought. There's a little bit of a betrayer in all of us. Remember, Judas was part of the in crowd of the 12 disciples. He was with Jesus for three years. The last verse that we read from our text, the disciples began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Upon hearing that, they didn't say, oh, it's Judas. As soon as we heard that, we knew it's Judas. He's part of their group. He's at the table with Jesus. He took part in the bread and the cup, marking a new covenant. There's a warning here. Even for us who have seen the work of Jesus personally, professed faith, heard the gospel, and you saw it come out in the, in the letter to the Corinthian church, there can be betraying of Jesus Christ in disunity. You see, division and turmoil in churches betrays Jesus' death on the cross to take away our sins. It's a constant reminder to look at our own lives and our own actions to see if we're participating in what brings greater unity or greater division. Are we prone to greater selfishness or greater love? Are we prone to greater discord or greater encouragement? This much, I, this much I know. There is no one around your life who is over-encouraged. Are we prone to consumerism in what is the church doing for me? Or are we prone toward missions and being engaged with what God is doing? The final aspect is that the Lord's Supper, communion, proclaims Jesus' death until he returns. That, again, is language taken from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. To proclaim Jesus' death until he returns is looking back at what Jesus accomplished on the cross and looking ahead to when he comes to make all things new. Look, if you're here and... and this whole time you thought, okay, 
he's only talking about the Lord's Supper, maybe from a Presbyterian perspective, and I've just kind of tuned out. This seems like just insider lingo. If that's you, I'm inviting you to tune back in. Because none of these distinctions related to the Lord's Supper has to do with our salvation. If you want to know what Christianity is all about, it isn't a set of rules by which you do right and you stop from doing wrong. I hope you've heard that. But hear what Christianity is all about. The entirety of the biblical story is really one storyline, and it's about Jesus. It's all about Him. So when you look at what Jesus did, you have to see it in connection with what happened through the centuries. It all starts with this question. Why is it important that Jesus die? Go back to that Exodus event. God promised to save His people from the bondage of slavery. How? By slaughtering a lamb and taking that blood. Well, that first Passover, let me read three verses out of Exodus 12. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight then they are to put some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. You see, God promised through the sacrifice of that lamb and its blood shed that the people of God would be saved from judgment and wrath. Hundreds of years later, the prophet Isaiah communicating God's word pointed ahead to one individual. This prophecy comes 700 years before Jesus came. From Isaiah 53, we would read, Surely He took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered Him punished by God, stricken by Him and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him. And by His wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so He did not open His mouth. By oppression and judgment He was taken away. Yet who of His generation protested? He was cut off in the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was punished. That's Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus came. When Jesus is about to begin his public ministry, his cousin John is preparing the way. And the very first time that John identifies Jesus to the people, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 35 years later, roughly, Peter is remembering all of this. He was there in that upper room as Jesus shared that Passover meal for the last time. And he would write this. For you know that it was not 
with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. Money did not buy you your freedom. You can't get salvation. You can't get away from your sins by paying for it. Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and hope are in God. The language from Exodus 12 is that this lamb was without spot or blemish. It's Jesus Christ. He is the only sinless one. It's his life that paid a ransom for ours. And then I'll close with this. John's vision in Revelation. Man, we've covered almost the whole Bible. Started in Exodus and here we are in Revelation. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. What it all boils down to is this. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for you, that is sufficient to bring you forgiveness for your sins, to reunite and reconcile you to God so that you can join him in eternity. Maybe you've never really done that before. Maybe you've been to church all your life, but you've never really stepped in and said, you know what, Jesus, I, I want to give you my life. You can do that right where you are. We hope you found this message to be encouraging. We'd love for you to join us on Sunday mornings. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and at bhprez.org for more information.